Hey everyone, me again, Laszlo Montgomery, here with another CHP episode, numero 169. Some of you may or may not recall way back when I did this overview of all the dynasties from Sha to Qing, CHP episodes 14 to 42. I got lazy and skipped over the Yuan Dynasty, which ran from 1271 to 1368. The reason I did that was because I already had uploaded a little piddly 18-minute episode on Kublai Khan. That was CHP episode number 10, one of the early ones. I figured, why do I have to rehash everything I already mentioned? So I just gave Genghis Khan and all his descendants short shrift by only offering that very simple overview of the rise of the Mongols and the life of Kublai Khan. Not long afterwards, I got a few emails that basically all said, you know, hey man, what the, is that all you're going to mention about the Yuan Dynasty? So I made a mental note about four years ago to redo that whole topic and don't be so lazy this time. Back then, I hadn't yet evolved into the old windbag you've all come to know. Now, many of you have already heard Dan Carlin's Wrath of the Khans, his five-part masterwork on the rise and fall of the Mongol Empire. I'm going to tell the story a little differently. I'm no Dan Carlin, hardcore history. If you never heard Dan's series before, you should go pay the buck ninety-nine it costs per episode and feast on Dan Carlin at his best. I'm not sure on how many parts it will take to tell this story. Probably two, maybe three. I promise you we'll get into more detail than I did in CHP 10. In fact, I might just go take that sad excuse for an episode on Kublai Khan and cast it off into oblivion, like that Qin Shi Huang episode. So let's talk about the Yuan Dynasty, the Mongols. In this episode, we'll get to about the rise of Kublai Khan before the Dayuan Chao is established. Here in our salad days of 2016, there are just under 6 million ethnic Mongols living inside the People's Republic of China. The entire population of Mongolia, a country about the size of Montana, California, and New York State combined, is about 3 million. If you recall from hardcore history, the Mongols were some very rough, intimidating, terrifying, and worst of all, organized people from the East Asian steppe. When you hear the term steppe people, it always has a kind of ferocious ring to it. Vicious and violent destroyers of civilizations. The steppe, what the heck is that in the first place? Well, I went to check the definition and it said, an extensive plain, especially one without trees. Another said, a large flat area of land with grass and very few trees, especially in Eastern Europe and Asia. Yeah, this great steppe gave rise to all these so-called steppe people. Parthians, Scythians, Yujur, Goths, Magyars, Huns, Slavs, Xiongnu, Xianbei, Shatua Turks, Kitans, Tatars, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, and Uyghurs. If you study ancient history or watch documentaries on the history or Nat Geo channels, you're surely familiar with at least a few of these names. From the fall of the Roman Empire until the Renaissance, these steppe people stood at the very top of the world military power food chain. And this steppe, where they all called home, stretched from almost the Danube River all the way to the Pacific Ocean. That was roughly from Moldova in the west all the way to the lands where North Korea, Russia, and China all come together. That's the entire length of Russia, and then some. And if you're wondering, Moldova? Where the heck is that? It's nestled in between Romania and Ukraine, next door to Transylvania, where Dracula came from. This land wasn't an island paradise where you could 
kick back and enjoy a nice, easy lifestyle. It was remote, far from water, not suitable for agriculture, no trees. If you lived there, you were a nomad. You never stayed in one place too long because you couldn't. Meat and dairy every day. From the fall of the Tang in 907 to the Ming in 1368, the north of China was always occupied by one tribe from the steppes or another, with the exception of the northern Song period, that is. That's why so many northern aristocrats and elites pulled up stakes and migrated south during these violent centuries and built a life in the south of China. Warmer climes and less steppe people. They knew better than to stick around and get either savaged or taxed to death by these invaders. The Hakkas, too, they were one of the earliest ones to abandon the north. It was Fujian or bust. When the Mongols were on the rise... The Manchus were the dominant force in the steppe. They were called the Jurchens back then. We got to know all about those guys in the CHP four-part series covering the life of the northern Song Emperor Huizong. Remember Aguda and Wuchimai? Those two guys made life miserable for the... twelfth-century residents of Kaifeng, and even more miserable for the Song royal family. This great Jurchen conqueror, Aguda, went on to establish the Jin dynasty, and he took control of northern China and put an end to the northern Song. The Song royal family, you vividly recall, in 1127 got carted away, one and all, to just about the coldest, harshest part of Manchuria. Thankfully for the ruling Zhao family, one of them got away. That was Zhao Go, a.k.a. Song Emperor Gaozong. He went on to reconstitute the Song dynasty down in Lin'an, present-day Hangzhou. And there they sat for a century and a half, from 1127 till 1279. We'll get to them later on. The Uyghurs, who were Turkic, not Mongolian, today mostly live in Xinjiang, the province with Russia and Mongolia to the north, and Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and disputed borders with India to the west. That's where the Uyghurs call home today, but that wasn't where they originally came from. They came from Mongolia. They had their golden age in the 8th and 9th centuries, and they had a mighty empire going for a while, but the Kyrgyz put an end to their good times around the 840s, and they were booted out of Mongolia. That's how the Uyghurs wound up first in the Gansu Corridor, and then after that to Xinjiang, where they are today. The Khitans moved in after the Uyghurs moved out. Later, following the conquest of Abaoji, CHP episode 126, the Liao dynasty was established. They were so feared in their day, but later on they'll be finished off by the Jin in 1125. The Khitans were massive at their peak. They even had relations with the Abbasid Empire, so even as far away as Baghdad, people had heard of these Khitans. The Mongols called them the Khitai, but the Persians, West Turkish, and Eastern Slavs mistakenly adopted that word for Kitan as their word for China. And from Kitai came Cathay, the word Marco Polo used for China. Back then, there were only maybe a million and a half Mongols at most, and that's hard to know for sure. They were fragmented into so many tribes. Later on, that's going to be the $64,000 question. How did a million and a half people control hundreds of millions of people? The Mongols don't even show up in Chinese history until the early 12th century. 
that's one of the things that differentiated them from all the other nomadic tribes on China's periphery. They weren't like the Xiongnu or Xianbei. They had no long history or relationship with China. You don't read about them until the 1140s. It's like they came out of nowhere. Of course, they had been around, but they were such a minor player on the steppe. They were only known as one of the many tribal groups on the borders of the Jin Empire. Others were the Tatars, Merkits, Kirates, Ongots, Ungarats, and Naimans. Some were Turkic, some were Mongol. You know something interesting? Several of these tribes I mentioned, Onguts, Merkits, and Kirates, they were Nestorian Christians. You might be wondering, really? Way out there? Nestorius lived from 386 to 451. He was the patriarch of Constantinople. The Nestorians believed Jesus existed as two persons, as the man Jesus and as the God Jesus Christ. The Nestorians from Syria sent missions out to Central Asia, and actually the faith took root in many places. But, you know, as Islam and Buddhism took hold, it all but died out in Central Asia. But it was still around in Mongol times. As late as the 1170s and 80s, no betting man would put their chips on the notion that these Mongols would be the unifier of the steppes, and certainly not the builders of the greatest land empire of all time. The Mongols' role model were the Kitans. That's what they resembled most. The Kitan, after many years of Sinification, were more sophisticated than the Mongols, but had allowed themselves to become too complacent and less mobile. This was despite their traditionally fierce commitment to the steppe and that whole nomadic way of life they clung to. As Genghis Khan will prove later on, mobility was the name of the game. It was all in the mobility and how fast you could inflict death and violence. And no one was more mobile than the Mongols. They were pretty violent, too, and taught how to fight at a very young age. You know, since the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, Mongolia has won 24 medals. Two gold, nine silver, 13 bronze. All from four sports, judo, boxing, wrestling, and shooting. You might say they had a natural ability. Enough of this rambling. I think you all have the general setup for what's about to transpire. Let me seize this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sort of look at the mythical beginnings of the Mongols and trace events from their Big Bang to the moment Temujin comes onto the scene. This Mongol mythology sort of mirrors that of the Kitans. For the Mongols, it all began north of Ulaanbaatar at Mount Burkhan, a blue-gray wolf mated with a fallow deer, a species of deer found on the Eurasian steppe. And from this union came the Mongols' primal ancestor, Batichikan. No exact time stamp on that as far as I was able to tell. But 12 generations later came Dobun and his good wife, Alan the Fair. She bore five sons, two from Dobun and three from some godlike force. And these five sons all went on to do great things and later on headed their own clans. Fast forward three more generations, and you have Kaidu. Kaidu, who lived during the second half of the 11th century, was the first to rule all Mongols. His great-grandson was Kabul Khan, and Kabul Khan's great-grandson was Temujin. Genghis Khan was born with the name Temujin. He lived from 1162 to 1227, 65 years. He was born in between the First and Second Crusades. It's the Middle Ages in Europe. People are just starting to coalesce around various towns that will later become the great cities of Europe. Europeans were starting to make their way to China via land, and now with the newly invented astrolabe, by sea as well. 
Marco Polo, his father and uncle, will count among these new travelers to China. When Temujin was born, the Jurchen Jing dynasty was in its 47th year. To the Mongols, that was China. They didn't know from anything beyond what the Jin held in northern China. They had no idea yet about a southern China or the southern Song dynasty. Before Temujin became the universal Khan, it was his great-grandfather, Kabul Khan, who had been the most powerful one ever to emerge. And when he died, the unified realm that he had managed to lead broke up. And it was this scattered nation of Mongol tribes, originally held together by Kabul Khan, that Temujin unified into one. Temujin's father, Yasuge the Brave, came five generations after Kaidu Khan. How do we know all this? It's all drawn from the official Yuan history, compiled from 1368 to 1370, as soon as the Ming was founded. And you know how these Chinese historiographers were with their chronologies, and that it was always the succeeding dynasty that would write the official history of the preceding one. There was also a work called The Secret History of the Mongols that also presents this early mythology and chronology. This Yuan Chao Mishi is one of the surviving primary source documents that gives halfway decent insight into what was going on there early to mid-13th century. It was all written not long after the death of Genghis Khan and didn't go through the filter of centuries of being passed on orally. Some of the greatest sinologists of the 20th century, experts in Mongolian studies, were the first to translate the secret history into modern languages. Anyway, it's a pretty important work when you're talking about this time. As the story goes, eight-year-old Temujin was traveling with his father to the lands occupied by the Ungarats. This Mongol tribe had become the source for wives and consorts for the Mongols of Temujin's tribe. As the story goes, he was fixed up with a bride. Her name was Borte, and the deal was signed and sealed. When Temujin was of age, he would marry her. But in the meantime, as custom dictated, he moved in with her family and lived with them for a while. In the meantime, Yasuge the Brave started heading back home after a job well done for his son. He encountered along the way a group of Tatars. The Europeans later added a superfluous R to that word, and so we know these people as Tartars, and the region they lived as Tartary. But it was Tatars. They were also Turkic originally. They were big allies of the Jurchen Jin rulers. When Yesuge ran into them, the customs of the steppe dictated that the Tatars had to treat him as a guest. Yesuge the Brave hung with them for a bit, had a meal or two, and then went on his way, returning home just in time to die from the slow-acting poison these Tatar tribesmen had added to his food. So Temujin's father, Yasuge the Brave, died suddenly before achieving his full potential. Now when the head of your clan died and there was no one else waiting in the wings to assume control, the clan would just disperse and travel the steppe until they found a new leader to follow. Yasuge's widow, Temujin's mother, was left to her own devices with five kids, four boys and a girl. She took her young family to the area around the Kente Mountains, northwest of present-day Ulaanbaatar, and raised them to become textbook Mongols. And under his mother's tutelage, Temujin grew to become a leader and began to form these bands with other nearby Mongol tribes. When he was of age, 
Temujin went back to the lands of the Ungarats and claimed his bride, Borte, even though his circumstances were much reduced since the marriage contract was signed. Borte's father knew a leader when he saw one and blessed the marriage and gave Temujin the entirety of his daughter's dowry. With this, Temujin went about rebuilding the clan that had disappeared after the death of his father. His first break came from an alliance with the Kirates. Remember, these guys were Nestorian Christians. This alliance provided Temujin with a great deal of prestige, and just as he's on the rise, his wife and partner in all things, Borte, went and got herself kidnapped by a group of raiding Merkits. I know, sounds like meerkats. This was around 1181. Within a year, Temujin, with his Kirate allies, were able to rescue his bride, but during the time of her absence, she gave birth to a son named Jochi. Temujin accepted him as one of his own. He may have been Jochi's father, but if you added up the months on your fingers, the matter of the child's paternity was questionable. Temujin, by this time in the 1180s, was one of several Mongol chieftains. But Temujin's star was on the rise, and the other clan elders looked to him as their best choice of leader. And so it was in the late 1180s, these elders all met at sacred Mount Burkhan, and declared Temujin Genghis Khan, or Boundless Universal Ruler. And this coronation will be formally repeated in 1206. Now began the battles to unify all the separate Mongol tribes. In the 1190s, the newly declared Genghis Khan allied with the Angarats to defeat the hated Tatars. They were dealt with, and afterwards were no longer a force to reckon with. Genghis Khan particularly hated these guys for what they had done to his father. The fighting went on, and although initially it didn't go well for the new great Khan, he began to exhibit the greatness that that was attributed to him as a military strategist. Though they were almost always outnumbered, the Mongol army, this fast-moving, mobile killing machine, waged war like no one had ever seen before. For the Mongols, there was no such thing as a supply train to slow things down. Every man carried on his back everything he needed to travel the steppe and wage war. Anything that could possibly slow them down was never carried and of no use. They could turn on a dime and were extremely opportunistic in how they were able to react to any kind of situation that arose in their favor. Genghis Khan is called one of the greatest military strategists of all time. He certainly was the greatest of his time during the Middle Ages. The other strength he had, besides being a first-class strategist, was that he was a fantastic judge of people. His success on the battlefield was not only due to his leadership, it came from the good eye he had for picking the best and most loyal generals, and later on, administrators. One of the many innovations Genghis Khan brought to the battlefield was the division of the army into units of ten. He learned this from the Jurchens. Using the decimal system, his army was divided up into units of 10, 100, and 1,000. Ten units of 1,000 men was called a Tuman, a Mongolian division. The command system was streamlined and very tight. There was no room for personalities or charisma. Everything was based on minute planning, and it operated like a precision machine. The whole decimal system adopted for the military also created a similar government and societal structure. Some tribes came willingly to the side of Genghis Khan. Some wanted to retain their independence. Those who were resisted were defeated. 
Between 1201 and 1206, all of them were brought to heel. And because he hated the Tatars so much, after he had already disabled them, he went back and made them scatter in 1202. They end up later, mostly, being associated with the Golden Horde. And they still exist today as a clan. The last ones to fall into line were the Nymans and their confederation in the western part of the steppe. By 1205, they had been defeated, and the entire steppe, from Manchuria to the Tungarian Basin in North Xinjiang, belonged to Chinggis Khan. Along the way, he had done away with the Khitan people. The Khitan Liao dynasty had already been done away with by the Jurchen Jin, but the Khitan as a people were still around. By the time Genghis Khan was finished with them, they scattered and were just absorbed into the Mongol nation. And all those fearsome tribes, the Tatars, Ungarats, Naiman, Kirate, they simply became clans within the Mongol Empire. They were only differentiated by the region where they called home. Once the Mongolian nation was all but complete, Genghis Khan began organizing. Laws and codes of conduct were all written up in this Mongol yasa. And any subsequent judgment made by the great Khan would be written into the yasa. Basically, it took traditional Mongol law and wrote it all down and scaled it up to a more fitting size to rule this new nation. Like most everything from the 13th century, it doesn't exist anymore. Thankfully, it was a significant enough document whereby it was often referred to in documents from West Asian kingdoms, so it made it down to us in this form. It was better than nothing. We, of course, remember Genghis Khan for his killing and murdering on a scale never seen before his time or since. But actually, this code of laws that are credited to him, of course, they were written by others, but he was this work's benefactor. This was one of his greatest and most lasting achievements. Anyone who has grown up in an environment where there was no law and order knows the value of living in a place where laws exist and are enforced. It allowed places to thrive and prosper. This was put in place in the early 13th century, and it's another one of those things that's hard to pinpoint as far as its greater impact. But it sure worked well in all parts of the Great Khan's empire. I mentioned Chinggis Khan had a knack for picking out good talent. Anything of value that a conquered nation had to offer, he was happy to take it. Most of all, this involved human talent. The scholars and literate people of the day, at least in that part of the world, were the Uyghurs and Unguts. They surrendered to Genghis Khan without a fight and were used effectively in setting up the whole administration and record-keeping system for the Mongol Empire. The Uyghur script was adopted by Genghis Khan for the Mongol language. To conquer was always the easy part. It's what you did afterwards that decided your staying power, especially when your numbers weren't so plentiful in the case of the Mongols. This will become especially true when they defeat the southern Song and take over China. Next up for Genghis Khan was his being officially made the top guy. And this was done at a Kuriltai. You know how the Afghans have their loya jirga? So it was with the Mongol Kuriltai. They had a Similar mechanism to bring all elders or leaders together to make the most important decisions. They all met on the banks of the Onan River in the spring of 1206, and there he was now officially proclaimed the leader of all Mongols and Turks as well. With this act, all was official. Everything was in place. Their portion of the steppe was now unified, organized, locked, and loaded. Let the killing begin. 
from 1206 to 1260. That was one bloody, gory, and miserable half-century. In taking stock of what he had at his disposal, Genghis Khan's forces numbered 95 units of 1,000 fighting men each. One man equaled one man, and his whole family and his closest dependents. So when you added it all up, he had about a million and a half Mongols. This number of 95 would grow to 129 in time. As I said, 10,000 men was a Tuman. As soon as Genghis Khan begins militarizing society down to the man, these Tuman will form one of the basic units to control the Mongol nation. You know, those were pretty violent and chaotic times, so not much has trickled down to us in terms of accurate numbers. But whatever did survive indicated they were the most horrible of times. The Mongol armies would sweep into a place, defeat armies on the battlefield, and then go in and kill everyone down to the last woman and child. There were no telecommunications in place yet, but word spread everywhere about these Mongols. And again, I want to reiterate, they did all this with relatively small numbers. They never won a battle due to numerical superiority. The two men that went in and conquered the land, simply settled in and ran the place from that point on and became the new replacement government. First order of business, once he was in charge, was to take out the three powers to the south of the newly unified Mongol Empire. Directly underneath the Mongols geographically were the Karakitai in the west, the Tangut Shisha Empire below, and of course the reigning champs, the Jin Dynasty just east of the Shisha, the western Xia. The Shisha went first and were absorbed into the Mongol Empire, never to be seen again. Next up were the Jurchens of the Jin Dynasty, still hanging in there. Oh, man. Back in the 1120s and 30s, these guys were unstoppable. Now here they were, almost a century later, and Genghis Khan saw them ripe for the taking. And his spies informed him of Jin battle plans. The Mongols went in and did to the Jin what the Jin did to the northern Song. The city that is now Beijing was besieged and later reduced to cinders. Jin survivors tried to pull off a southern Song maneuver to make a last stand to the south in Kaifeng, though Genghis Khan won't live to see it. The rest of the Jin would be finished off when the Mongols took Kaifeng in 1233. Two down, one to go. After ten years of intense fighting, Genghis Khan sent a couple Tumen to go pick off the Karakitai. These were remnants from the conquered Liao Kitan dynasty. These nobles led their people westward toward the Ili Valley. And there they teamed up with the Uyghurs and set up a new state called Karakitai, Black Kitai. It's also called the Western Liao. This comprised all of northwest China and the lands adjacent to there. By 1218, they too were no more. And the great Khan was at last master of his realm from Mongolia and Siberia down to North China. Mission accomplished. The great Khan didn't sit around and rest on his laurels. No sooner is he the master of the eastern steppe, he calls for the first of the three great campaigns to the west. This first one, he personally led. The other two would be led by his progeny. This first campaign went down between 1218 and 1225. The Nazis employed their blitzkrieg warfare, the Americans used shock and awe in Iraq in 2003. Genghis Khan was the 13th century version of that kind of war. His 
lightning campaigns were shocking in their effectiveness, but the most terrifying aspect of facing the Mongol army was how the local populace were dealt with afterwards. It wasn't uncommon for the inhabitants of defeated cities who resisted too aggressively to be slaughtered down to the last woman and child. This was all part of the strategy. Maybe today you don't look at Central Asia as one of the world's great intellectual centers. Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Every single one of the great Silk Road centers of learning located in those lands were plundered and destroyed by 1220. This area, which was basically everything east of Baghdad where the caliphate was based, was then known as the Khwarizmian Empire. They had spit in Genghis Khan's eye one time too many and had even murdered his envoys. Man, did he ever make them pay for that. He literally stopped fighting the Jurchen Jin, turned on his heels and rode west to go deal with these guys personally. People had been passing back and forth through the cities and towns located in this Khwarizmian Empire since the Han Dynasty. All of that learning accumulated over the centuries ended up getting lost to the ages. After Genghis Khan had his payback, hardly anything survived. In 1220, Bukhara, the Alexandria of the region, was sacked. Samarkand went next. By the time Genghis Khan's armies made it to the Indus River, south of Peshawar in the Hindu Kush region, everything in their path had been laid bare. No one had ever seen anything like this. It was, it was the atomic bomb of its day. I think... Dan Carlin gave you a very vivid take on the kind of things they would do. This first campaign not only added vast amounts of territory to the already large Mongol Empire, it served as an exercise to test the waters for future campaigns. They had grown very methodically. First, Temujin united the Mongols. Then, after he became Genghis Khan, he unified the eastern steppe and the lands to the west of there. All that was left was everything west of that. In 1226, Genghis Khan decided he had to go back and finish off the western Xia, down near the Ordos Bend of the Yellow River. By 1227, he had made fast work of them, and they, too, were finished for good. The only bad thing was that sometime in August of that year, no one knows for sure how, but the great Khan died on this campaign against the Xi Xia. Genghis Khan had four sons from his wife, Borte. Because she was his primary wife, only her offspring with Genghis Khan counted. Okay, we mentioned his maybe, maybe not son, Jochi. He was the one born when Borte was in captivity for about a year. He conveniently died or was killed in 1227, but was succeeded by his son, Batu. Batu later on will become the Khan of the Golden Horde up in Russia. We'll get to that in a second. Then there was Chagadai. He was the number two son. He was already grumbling about being the legitimate next in line since who knew if Jochi was the real thing or not. Seeing this state of affairs, in order to preserve what he had created, Genghis Khan took his big-ass empire and divided it up amongst his sons. Chagadai's turf was Central Asia proper. This part of the empire was also known as the Khanate of Chagadai. The number three son, however, he would be made the heir to Genghis Khan, and rule over the other Khanates as Khan of Khans, or Great Khan. This was Ogadei Khan. The fourth son, Tolui, was given, by custom, I guess, the Khanate of the actual Mongolian homeland. Tolui is important because he had four sons, Manke, Kublai, Hulegu, and Arekboke. More about them in a bit. 
When the national founder of an empire dies suddenly, it's not uncommon for there to be a big shakeup. In 1227, when Genghis Khan died fighting the Western Xia, that's just what happened. But after a lot of bellowing and whatnot, things settled into a routine, and now that Ogadai Khan was the one in charge, the first thing he says he wants to do is invade China. From 1231 to 1232, he laid waste to Sichuan, getting the place softened up for a later planned invasion of China from the west. Around 1236, when pretty much all of Sichuan was taken, over a million local inhabitants were killed just in and around Chengdu. Remember, the Jin were still not completely finished. They were still existing at their southern capital in Kaifeng. 1233, 1234, however, they too were relegated to the history books. They'll rise again one day as the Manchus in 1644. But for now, the Jurchens were a conquered people. The Mongols always had a chip on their shoulder about the way they had been treated by the Jurchens in the past. Well, they showed them. In 1235, Ogade called another one of those Kuraltai to hash out the matter of the second campaign to the West. This one was quite a doozy, and although he had already distinguished himself in the first campaign to the West, Subote, in the second campaign, immortalized himself as one of the greatest military leaders and strategists in world history. Subote certainly defeated more lands than any other man in the history of conquest. Genghis Khan gets all the credit, but don't forget Subote. His name should be mentioned in the same breath as the Great One. He led this second campaign, and over the period of about five years, he took his armies to Hungary and back to Karakorum. Subate, assisted by Jochi's son and heir, Batu, led the cavalry through Jungaria into the heart of Central Asia, staying north of the Aral Sea near the borders of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. The Volga region was pretty much laid to waste. That's the longest river in Europe. All the main cities along its path, including Moscow, felt the wrath of the Khan. In 1240, it was Ukraine's turn. Kiev, one of the largest and most sophisticated cities in the world at the time, was completely destroyed by Batu Khan's armies. Next came Poland in April 1241, followed lastly by Hungary. Ogadai Khan did not participate in this second campaign. He remained behind and focused on organizing this new empire his father left him in charge with, although it was anathema to a true blue Mongol to settle down and give up the nomadic lifestyle. That's what was starting to happen in some parts. They had to. This was a very big enterprise to manage, and all the shareholders had a mind of their own about how things should be and what their exalted place in it should be. The Mongol armies were still ravaging Eastern Europe and Western Russia when news arrived that the Khan had died in the capital of Karakorum before an orderly succession could be worked out. His son, Guyuk, became the disputed new Khan, but his death two years later complicated an already complicated situation. This is where the trouble starts. All hell, for the most part, broke loose between the surviving sons of Genghis Khan. Finally, at a curl tie in 1249... Monke Khan was elected Kagan. He was the oldest son of Tului, the youngest of Genghis Khan's sons. Tului was the one handed the Mongol homelands as his turf. When all was said and done, it was his son Monke who became the new leader of the whole Mongol Empire. 
Unfortunately, he had to waste all his energies initially fighting off the three other contenders, his brothers or their progeny, and they were constantly nipping at his heels. Monke Khan is the last ruler before Kublai Khan, and as far as able Mongol leaders and administrators go, he was the best of them. That doesn't mean he didn't pay attention to conquering the world. Under his watch, the lands of Iraq and Syria were taken, as well as the Dali Kingdom down in Yunnan. This was during the Third Campaign. That was launched in 1253 with third brother Hulagu in charge this time. Subate had died in 1248. So he set out in 1253 with 75,000 soldiers. He, he crossed through the former Khwarizmian Empire, which was now part of the Khanate of Chagadai, and continued west past Persia. There's a very interesting story about how Hulagu went after the assassins. These were Nizari Ismailis. The Nizari are Shia Muslims. They go all the way back to the beginnings of the Crusades. The assassins chose no sides and acted as these mysterious vigilantes, and went after Muslim and Christian alike. They were feared by all the leaders in the region where they operated. This secret order was hunted down by Hulagu's men in their Elbers mountain lair east of present-day Tehran and dealt with Mongol style. Their mountain fortress of Alamut was destroyed, and this fabled group, these Hashashin or Hashish eaters, were made extinct no one has ever definitively determined how they got that name, but it's from this group where we got the word assassin. Mongol rule in Persia had suffered because of this secret order of assassins, but now with them out of the way, the Mongol yoke was put back on and there were no further incidents in Persia for the time being. Next up in 1258 was the Abbasid Caliphate, which had been around since the time of the Tang Dynasty. Its capital was in Baghdad. They had their golden age from... 775 to 861, but the empire was now in decline and easy prey for the Mongols, as they did in the great academic centers of Bukhara and Samarkand. Baghdad, perhaps the greatest intellectual center on earth at that time, was gutted and destroyed in February 1258. Hundreds of thousands were killed in the siege and later assault. The caliph and his family were also killed. Those that survived fled to Cairo, where they reemerged as the Mamluks. Body blow that the Mongol sacking of Baghdad gave to Islamic intellectual life lasted for centuries. The Mongols by now really had the siege warfare thing down pat. This kind of way to battle an opponent wasn't part of their original repertoire, but those they conquered and brought into their empire taught them how siege equipment was made and how to effectively use it to defeat a city hiding behind their walls. That's all you could do back in those days. Hulagu Khan then turned his sights northward, taking Azerbaijan, Tabriz, and Syria. By 1260, they were heading towards Jerusalem. This was right after the Seventh Crusade, the one with St. Louis IX. After taking the whole region as far as Lebanon, Hulagu decided to head back in the direction of Persia, leaving a force of ten to 20,000 soldiers to hold the fort down in the Middle East. These two ill-fated Tumans will be defeated in a battle by the Mamluks. The Mamluks were the Muslim version of the Mongols, very rough and disciplined fighters. Their defeat on September 6, 1260, will be the first major setback for the Mongols in battle since they penetrated into the western steppe. 
Hulagu, seeing what a lovely and rich land Persia was, decided this was the place for him. He lived out his days there as the Khan, with his settling in at his new capital. The last of the three great western campaigns of the Mongols was over. This Ilkhanate, as it was called, remained very independent and even fought against the Golden Horde. Yeah, these sons and grandsons of Genghis Khan, they did not get along. Continental Asia just wasn't big enough for the four of them. This is where Kublai Khan begins his rise. He was the second brother of Monke Khan. While Hulagu was in Mesopotamia and Persia, leaving utter destruction in his wake, Monke Khan was hard at work planning the takedown of China. He gave his little brother Kublai the task of leading a Mongol army down to Yunnan in the southwest part of China and get the place all set up as a base from which to invade Song, China. Indeed, he went down there with an army, and in 1253, the Dali kingdom of Yunnan fell to Kublai Khan's forces. They had been around since 937, the messy post-Tang dynasty years. So Yunnan was brought under Mongol rule, and it's pretty much been part of China ever since. That's one of the provinces in China that's chock full of ethnic minority people. I'm going to do a series one day on that whole region of China. By the mid-1250s, Monkey Khan started ramping up to launch his campaign to snatch the greatest prize of all. Now, we know, of course, the southern Song doesn't officially fall till 1279. How could the Chinese have possibly lasted another 20 years when the combined might and ferocity of three separate Mongol armies were coming at them? One was led by Monkey Khan, another by Kublai Khan, and a third was sweeping it from the south from the newly subjugated Yunnan. Monke Khan led his forces into China via Sichuan from the west. Kublai Khan attacked via Hubei in the Yangtze River Valley. This full-scale invasion began in 1258. But guess what? These Khans always seem to die at a bad time. Monke Khan, out of nowhere, in August 1259, gone. Only 50 years old, which in those days probably wasn't so bad. But dying so suddenly like he did... The matter of succession hadn't been decided. And you know how these guys were. So, talk about a reprieve. The whole invasion of China was backburnered, and everyone went to their respective corners to figure out what to do next. A lot was at stake here. Kublai Khan went back to Mongolia and organized this rump curl tie. Many of the key nobility boycotted the meeting. So, without any opposition, he thereby declared himself the new top Khan, to replace his older brother, Monke Khan. All these years, pretenses had been kept up between the brothers to some extent, out of respect for their Mongolian heritage. They all got along on the outside, usually, but not anymore. Once Kublai Khan made his power grab at a curl tie that wasn't properly represented, there were no longer any further attempts to show any of the old-time Mongol solidarity. It was every Khan for himself now. And one interesting thing, it's already starting now, but by the turn of the 14th century, the Mongols, outside of the Mongolian heartland, all started converting to Islam. By the 1330s, all the Mongols of Central Asia and west of Mongolia had converted. The youngest of Ogdai Khan's son was Eric Boke. He was the one who had led the greatest resistance to Kublai Khan. And these two brothers fought a protracted civil war for four years. 
Like Kublai, he did the old assemble a rump curl tie and declare yourself great con trick. I'll spare you the blow by blow, but suffice to say, Arik Boke surrendered to his older brother Kublai on August 21st, 1264. You know, I'm really oversimplifying a lot of what's going on. If Owen Lattimore were alive, he'd be cringing. Mongolian culture and how they were organized and which clan was which and who was allied to who and the relationships between all the Khanets and which bloodline was in charge, it's hard to follow. Forget about trying to pronounce and remember all the Mongol names. Let's call it a day here. And when we come back next time, we'll trace the rise of Kublai Khan and look at all the things he does during his glorious reign from 1260 to 1294. A nice, productive 34-year stretch. And as we'll see, and this isn't a spoiler alert, when he dies, the same old thing happened again, and the maneuvering to replace Kublai Khan turns into an epic scrum. Anyhow, that's all for next time. This is your humble narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from, what can I say, except a perfectly beautiful sunny day here in Los Angeles, California. If you're so inclined, or you have nothing better to do, I hope you'll tune in next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.